0: You're listening to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, episode 99. Welcome to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, where we bring you engaging conversations about wildlife and conservation from all across the globe. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky. On today's show, we have a follow-up conversation with one of our most well-received guests on the show, Nathaniel Stinnett from the Environmental Voter Project. Nathaniel and I chatted back in August and he shared with all of you his mission to transform environmentalists into consistent voters. He also shared a unique perspective on the importance of voting, explaining that if you don't vote, politicians that are already in office simply don't pay attention to you, which means that the issues that you care about don't get the attention that they deserve. The episode clearly resonated with all of you, our listeners, because immediately after the presidential election, I started to get requests to have Nathaniel back on the show. So here we go, per listener request our post-election breakdown with Nathaniel Stinnett from the Environmental Voter Project. Well, Nathaniel, it's really fantastic to have you uh, back on the show for a second interview to have a little bit, a little uh, post-election conversation here. Um... The first thing I'm going to have you do is just give us a quick refresher on the Environmental Voter Project um, for folks who maybe missed uh, the first interview that we did together. What's the mission and vision of uh, this organization that you run?
1: Yeah, so the Environmental Voter Project is a nonpartisan nonprofit that uses big data to find non-voting environmentalists. And then we use the latest behavioral science techniques to turn these people into consistent voters. And the reason we do this is because we've realized that there's actually a huge turnout problem in the environmental movement. We've found over 15 million environmentalists who don't vote in midterm elections and over 10 million environmentalists who don't vote in presidential elections, So we're kind of like a big data version of rock the vote. But for environmentalists, we don't care about winning particular elections. All we care about is finding these environmentalists who don't vote and tweaking their habits so that they become better voters.
0: You don't focus on the outcomes of particular elections, but I mean, I have to ask you, like, from your perspective as you know the founder of of this organization, Environmental Voter Project. I mean, what happened on on Tuesday the eighth, right? Like, I mean, what what were you, what was going through your head as you were seeing these election results come in? Right, right. Um, well, yes, I mean, as you as
1: you mentioned, the Environmental Voter Project is nonpartisan and we don't endorse candidates, uh, but. Uh, Listen, I I think there is no denying that uh, Donald Trump's environmental policies uh, are not good for our planet, and they're not good for people who care about clean air or clean water or land conservation or wildlife conservation or climate change. Um, And so I I understand why a lot of people who care about these issues are. are a bit despondent uh and then as as for what happened you know i mean well i need to start with an important caveat and i, and I don't want to sound like a killjoy here but listen millions of things happen each day on a campaign and each of those million things can affect voters in dozens of ways and so the only honest and accurate way to answer that question is to say that no one thing ever decides an election and no one thing ever happened to to move voters this way or that way. But listen, I, I, I know that's a really unsatisfying answer. <laughs> and I, of course, have some opinions as to where some of the big as to what some of the big factors were that led to Trump winning and to Clinton losing. And the first one. And I think the most important one is obviously something we deal with day in, day out at the Environmental Voter Project, and that is turnout. I mean, I imagine we may dig into this in more detail later on, but there is no doubt that many people who were likely to support Hillary Clinton ended up staying home on election day. And we already have some very good evidence that proves that. I'd say the second thing that, that happened is Donald Trump clearly spoke to blue-collar white voters in a very compelling and powerful way. Many more Obama voters flipped to Trump than suburban Romney voters flipped to Clinton. And that's a large reason why Trump did so well in Iowa and Wisconsin and Michigan and Ohio and Pennsylvania. Um, I mean yes Clinton made some gains with suburban voters in places like Georgia and Arizona but I I think we need to recognize that Trump really spoke very compellingly to a lot of Obama voters. Um and then I'd say the third thing that happened is you know you you need to mention FBI director James Comey. Uh his very uh, unusual announcement uh, just 11 days before the election that the FBI was looking into new evidence concerning Hillary Clinton's emails uh, had an effect. There's no doubt that it, it had a big and immediate effect on the polls. Now, was it a difference maker? I, I don't know. And we'll never know. We'll never know. Uh, but there's no denying if you look at the data and the polls that it had an impact so I think those are the three things that really jump out at me. Turnout, uh, Trump's really compelling message that drove blue-collar Obama voters to switch, and, uh, and a few last-minute surprises.
0: Um, you've been sharing around via social media and email blasts, I mean, uh, uh, an electoral map image that that I think um, is particularly interesting. You probably know the map image that I'm talking about. I mean, it, yeah. m- maybe you can explain to people sort of, you know, w- what folks see on this image and and, and what, what this means.
1: Sure, sure. So first, I, I, I should give credit to brilliantmaps.com, who created the map. Uh, but to describe it, it was one of those state-by-state electoral vote maps that everyone was obsessing over in the weeks leading up to the election. You probably filled one out yourself, Matt. Uh, but this, this electoral vote map had one big difference. It, it added in a new candidate, a candidate named did not vote. This map didn't just track whether Clinton or Trump won a particular state. They also tallied up the number of people – Who were eligible to vote in each state but chose to stay at home and this map said you know what if those people what what if did not vote had been a candidate were all of the people who stayed home in a particular state did they actually represent more votes than the two major candidates and the answer is an overwhelming yes if did not vote had been a candidate on November 8th, it would have won by a landslide with a whopping 490 electoral votes, and Clinton would have only gotten 32 votes, and Trump would have only gotten 16. This election was decided by who stayed at home and not just who showed up, and, and if you think about it by looking at an electoral map, it really hits you in the face, did not vote won this election by a landslide by a landslide
0: it's just amazing to me right i mean and i mean because this is sort of the the topic that that you're focused on in in your work with environmental voter project i mean that's got to be particularly frustrating for you to see but i mean at the same time like that it doesn't necessarily mean that that you and, and, and other folks at Environmental Voter Project, you know, failed in your mission to register environmental voters, right? I mean, like you, you mentioned, I mean there's a thousand reasons why somebody would choose to either go out and vote or to stay home. Maybe you can just talk a little bit about like what you and others at Environmental Voter Project were doing sort of in the months leading up to the election and what can you sort of point to that you feel like actually are, are accomplishments. Right,
1: right. So it's a great question. And first, let me just really stress that as as frustrating as it ought to be for people who care about the environment and for people who just care about progressive politics overall, as frustrating as it might be that we have this turnout problem, it's actually – well, I wouldn't claim it's good news, but there is a very bright silver lining, and that's this. It's a heck of a lot easier – to find someone who already agrees with you and get them to vote than it is to change someone's mind and get them to start agreeing with you in the first place. And so the fact that we have this silent majority who believe in progressive values, the fact that there are tens of millions of environmentalists who are already persuaded but just don't vote yet is actually a good thing. It's a good thing. It presents an extraordinary opportunity because – Changing someone's mind is really hard, but changing their habits is a lot easier. Now, as for what happened this time around, uh, with the Environmental Voter Project, you know, we only launched last year. uh, And we've identified 10.1 million super environmentalists who we thought would not be voting in the November eighth presidential election, but you know, as a group that's only twelve months old, we had the funds to maybe reach at best three or four percent of them. Uh, so I'll be the first to admit uh, we didn't have a good or a bad impact on this election. We we had almost no impact on this election. Uh, we're, we're a very new organization, but one thing that I think is really really encouraging is. We've been able to test a lot of our tools and see an enormous impact. We've been able to increase turnout among these non-voting environmentalists when we do talk to them by 5.1%. So what that means, Matt, is if we had had the funds to reach out to all 10 million of those folks— We would have added 515,000 brand-new environmentalists to the electorate after just one election. So, listen, I'm not going to pretend like at the Environmental Voter Project we were doing somersaults and clinking champagne after election night. We weren't. But we are extraordinarily encouraged by these results because we now know, we know that all we need to do is scale up. We know how to find these people, and we know how to turn them into voters. Uh, we just need the funds to be able to reach more of them. And I'm excited at the opportunities that we, that we are going to have to expand over the coming years. Uh, because when we were canvassing and calling and mailing and sending digital ads to the folks that we could reach this time around, we were, uh, we were seeing amazing results, really amazing results.
0: I love the fact that you're able to sort of put a positive spin on the, on, on, on these things. And I mean, it is. I mean, it's I, I really see what you're talking about, about this this opportunity, right, um, that 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 we have, that this sort of lack of turnout sort of presents. The second thing, you know, when I when I asked you, you know, sort of what you saw, you know, on Election Day, I mean, you pointed to these three issues. Um, that that you saw that sort of shaped the outcome of the election. All three of those issues are tied to turnout, right? Because I mean, that's what this all is about is about getting people out and getting people to vote. But I mean, you pointed to the, the messaging that Trump used and, and how he was able to connect with this large group of voters and, and also connect with a lot of people who, who voted for Obama in, in previous presidential elections. But at the same time, like, Trump got fewer votes than Mitt Romney did in 2012, yet he still won. So I guess I'm wondering, like, what your perspective is on on the Democratic candidate, you know, right. uh, H- Hillary Clinton. Like, this taps into this larger question of like, what role, sort of, the personality of a candidate has on on turnout, right?
1: Right, right. Uh, so I think you bring up a really good point, Matt. And I and I want to be clear. Uh, I think turnout was the first, second, and third most important factor in <laughs> yeah. what happened on November 8th. And, you know, Trump being able to flip some blue-collar white, you know, male voters in certain states was maybe the fourth most important factor. <laughs> and maybe James Comey was the fifth most important factor. I mean, you're absolutely right that turnout really, really drove a lot of what we saw. Uh, now, as to whether particular candidates affected turnout, uh, you know, it, it's, it's always hard to, to figure out the answer to that question because it's hard to figure out why someone doesn't vote. right? I mean, most people, when you ask them, are ashamed to admit that they didn't vote, let alone discuss why they skipped voting. So we can only guess about things like this. But what we do know is the following. One, negative campaigns almost always depress turnout. And this was a really negative campaign, a really negative campaign. The second thing is both major candidates had historically high disapproval ratings. I mean, I mean stratospherically high disapproval ratings. <laughs> and, so, and so, yes, my guess is that the candidates had something to do with a low turnout we saw. Does that mean that Hillary Clinton ran a poor campaign when it came to mobilizing certain people? I I don't know. I don't know. Good campaigns lose all the time and bad campaigns win all the time. And there are a million different things that go into the mix on this stuff. Uh, But what we do know is, yes, turnout was abysmal. Turnout was abysmal. And you can't, you know, a lot of people point to the raw number of votes. And and you, you just can't look at the raw number of votes. We had 129 million people vote. In the 2012 presidential election. It looks like we're going to end up having about 134 or 135 million votes cast in this 2016 presidential election. And so some people look at that and say, oh, you know, turnout actually wasn't that bad. You had five or six million more people vote. But the problem is this. The number of people who actually ended up voting, yes, it did go up 4% from 2012. But, Matt, the number of registered voters went up 24 (laughs) percent, 24 percent. If you look at turnout over a denominator of registered voters, which is the only important denominator to think of, right? If you're not registered to vote, you can't vote. So all we should really care about is the percentage of registered voters who showed up. Well, as a percentage of registered voters – We had 84% turnout in 2012. We had 67% turnout this year. So turnout was way, way down. And that always, always hurts progressives more than conservatives. It just always does. And you and I can talk for hours and hours about why that might be the case, but it just always is. The more conservative you are, the more likely you are to vote in pretty much any election. And the more progressive you are, the less likely you are to vote in pretty much any election. And so when turnout is down that much, it always hurts the Democratic candidate. Now, your guess is as good as mine as to whether Hillary Clinton made certain mistakes or Donald Trump did certain things really, really well to drive that turnout. But, uh, the, the underlying facts are undeniable. This was an awful, awful turnout election, and that really, really hurt Hillary
0: Clinton. So, uh, those numbers you just threw at me are are actually kind of boggling my mind. So, I mean, f- first of all, because, like you said, if you look at the, the percentage of uh, registered voters who actually voted, I mean, that is an unbelievable difference between this uh, election cycle and 2012. Um, but, I mean, the other thing you said is that, that there was a, a 20-something increase in the number of registered voters, which, I mean, that actually... Like, wow, that's that's pretty amazing, actually. Uh, I mean, that seems like a really dramatic increase just over four years in, in the number of, of folks who are registered to vote. Is that normal? I mean, is, is, that, is, is that really something that we should think of as exceptional? It, yes, it
1: is absolutely exceptional. And so, no, it is not normal. Uh, and over the last four years, we've seen an increase from 153 million registered voters, to 200 million registered voters, and that didn't happen by accident. It happened through a combination of two things. Uh, one, a few states—and forgive me for not having them at the tip of my tip of my tongue—but a few states just made it far easier for people to be automatically registered to vote. So when they go get a driver's license, they're automatically registered to vote, or they're just automatically registered to vote when they turn 18, or they can show up at the polling place on election day and register to vote. So that's where part of the bump came from. Another part of the bump came from the success of of people on both sides of the aisle, but largely the success among progressive activist groups in registering people to vote. The interesting thing is going to be, though, over the next six months as all of this data comes in, people who are part of the progressive movement, whether it be environmental groups or labor unions or other advocacy organizations, are going to have to look at how many of those newly registered voters ended up actually voting. And once you look at that, we're going to have to really think hard about whether registering people to vote gets a good return on our investment. Now, we can't just ignore registering voters. Registering voters always has to be an important part of any political mobilization, whether you be conservative or progressive. But you're, you're right to recognize that that was a huge jump, and we did not get a huge jump in the actual number of votes to correspond with that. We had a 24% increase in the number of registered voters and only a 4% increase in the number of votes. And so we're, we're going to have to really figure out what happened and what that means over the coming months.
0: Something that a number of political pundits have sort of pointed to and, and you know, something that's sort of become like common terminology in, in, in this election cycle is, is the enthusiasm gap. Right. right. And you know, I, I I read this article that sort of, you know, posed this like example of like like how this enthusiasm gap affects turnout, which I thought was was particularly interesting, right? Which is that if you have a candidate, you know, say you have a, a voter who is, is really, really excited about voting for a particular candidate. They really connect with that candidate, like not only are they gonna go out and vote. For that candidate they're gonna make sure that every single one of their friends goes out and votes for that candidate whereas if you have somebody who's just like yeah you know like like yeah i'm gonna vote for you know like i'll go out and vote for hillary clinton because you know the, the 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 democratic platform is really progressive you know but like i don't you know not super enthusiastic about it like they're not gonna motive you know they're not gonna go out and motivate their friends to like go to the polls that example seemed really tangible to me right of like how the level of enthusiasm for a candidate can have a dramatic impact on on turnout. And I guess, I guess I just wonder if that's something that, like, that you guys have thought about at an Environmental Voter Project, or, or I mean, is, is there any way to sort of measure that? Yeah,
1: I, I mean, it, there are ways to measure it. You know, you can you know, pollsters will often not just ask who someone is supporting, but ask them on a scale of one to 10 how enthusiastic they are about supporting that particular candidate. And then you can follow up and try to see what the actual voting rates, what the actual turnout rates are among enthusiastic supporters and unenthusiastic people. The thing is, though, it is, you know, it it's very hard to use that information as a turnout tool. We can't, you know, force people to get more enthusiastic about a particular candidate unless we're the actual candidate. <laughs> uh, and sometimes that works and sometimes that doesn't work. I mean, that's what campaigns spend billions of dollars on each year. Uh, but you're absolutely right to recognize that as something that drives turnout um, and drives more importantly, activism, which is what you were also mentioning. You know, it, if someone's enthusiastic, they're not just more likely to vote; they're more likely to get involved in the campaign. They're more likely to talk to people about how excited they are. They're more likely to be public about it, whether it be on social media or in meetings or other or elsewhere in their community. And it's something that I saw. I mean, I live in Massachusetts, and I remember three weeks before the election, driving on the highway to go and visit uh, some family members. And on the overpass, I saw four or five people holding Trump signs. Now, I live in Massachusetts. I'm not even sure if there was a single Trump campaign staff member in the entire state of Massachusetts. (laughs) So I can guarantee you, I can guarantee you that nobody on the Trump campaign called these people up and said, hey, we'd love you to do this. No one in their right mind would tell people to do that anyway. Even if they were in a in a swing state, it's just not a great use of resources. If someone wants to volunteer, you put them on the phones or you do that. And what that means to me is like these people on their own got some signs from the campaign, got together and went out to a highway overpass to hold Donald Trump signs, totally on their own. And I'm not going to pretend when I saw that I had some intuition that Donald Trump was going to win or that he was going to win Massachusetts, which obviously didn't happen. But that really struck me as a sign of how enthusiastic people were to support him. And as you probably remember, before the election, a lot of people were saying, oh, you know, I, I wonder if there are a lot of secret Trump supporters or, or people who are ashamed to support him. And, you know, I kept on seeing things like that and saying to myself, you know, there aren't secret Trump supporters. These folks are really, really enthusiastic about what they're doing. Um, and I'm sure that led to higher levels of activism and higher levels of turnout.
0: That's a really powerful example, right? Uh, it's super interesting. So you've set up the Environmental Voter Project as, as a nonpartisan organization, right? And, and you don't endorse candidates. However, isn't there a potentially valid approach in actually looking at rates of enthusiasm for different candidates and then choosing to endorse the candidate with the highest level of enthusiasm with the idea that the candidate with more enthusiastic supporters will increase turnout?
1: Uh, yes. Yes, there is validity to that. However, I think there are far more powerful ways to get people to vote than taking advantage of how enthusiastic they are about a particular candidate, largely because a bunch of recent research tells us that the thought process that people go through when deciding whether to vote or not, is usually not a cost-benefit analysis where they think, you know what, I'm gonna, I, I've got to vote for candidate X because my vote makes it more likely that that person's gonna win, which means all these wonderful things will happen in my life, and boy, oh boy, am I excited to vote for this person. We might say that to ourselves. But study after study shows that it actually doesn't increase our likelihood of voting that much. It does it a little bit, but not that much. What the studies show does really increase our likelihood of voting is a much more generic, nonpartisan type of messaging that takes advantage of how people view themselves and how they express themselves as human beings. Uh, and so it actually is much more powerful to go up to someone who you want to make sure votes and say something like, um, Hey Matt, uh, did you know that last time there was a presidential election, 183 people on your street voted? Now I didn't mention a candidate. I didn't mention any issues. All I did was I used some social pressure, some peer pressure and took advantage of your desire to fit in or your desire to do things that your neighbors are doing or do things that your neighbors think is important and that that often boosts turnout 5 6 even 7% if you can deliver a message like that whereas if i take advantage of your love of bernie sanders or hillary clinton as a way to get you to vote maybe it boosts your turnout 1 or 2% but but that's it And so, yes, you're right that taking advantage of people's enthusiasm for a particular candidate does increase turnout, but not nearly as much as apolitical, nonpartisan messaging that takes advantage of things like people's desire to be civically engaged or people's desire to fit in or be like their neighbors. Those are much more powerful.
0: There's been a lot of discussion, especially post election because of the low turnout, um, about sort of the approaches that like that that other countries and, and other democracies have towards voting, right? And there have been talk about the, the idea of uh, mandatory voting. Um, I, I, I guess I'm just sort of wondering if like these ideas, like it, are, are, are any of these ideas things that in the environmental voter project might, like, advocate for or support? Is this something that is on your radar?
1: Uh, It's absolutely on our radar. But, Matt, mandatory voting ain't gonna happen. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's just not. Uh, And and the real reason it won't happen is something I said earlier. The population of non-voters trends very progressive, and the population of consistent voters trends very conservative. And so, you know, you know, I don't think I'm I'm going to surprise anybody who's listening when I say Conservatives don't want mandatory voting. <laughs> they, they don't. Uh, for, for very good political reasons, it would, make them, it would make it harder for conservative candidates to win elections. And so, yes, mandatory voting would completely change uh, the electorate, obviously, and that would change the, the types of policies that we get at the local, state, and federal level. But I think it is extraordinarily unlikely that we see any movement on that, no matter how many people get behind it. Uh, I think when you think of things – when you think of laws that might change the electoral makeup, it's more likely that redistricting reform and campaign finance reform will pass than something like mandatory voting.
0: Uh, I mean what about something less extreme right I mean other ideas that have been proposed have been like say make make voting day like a national holiday so people don't have to go to work so it's easier for them to sort of get to the polls I mean is there is there some sort of like middle ground that you think is is more uh, a more realistic target
1: Yeah you know I mean I think stuff like that is always worth looking into but you know we we really need to test it you know, sometimes you got to be careful what you wish for, because you might just get it. It is not at all clear that turnout goes up if you make voting a holiday. Now, yes, you remove certain people's excuses, and you make it easy for certain people to vote. But you also make it easy for certain people to take a vacation. And so it's, you know, there are a lot of studies that show that Early voting, if done one way, increases turnout a little, but if done another way, doesn't increase turnout at all. And, you know, it, it's it, I wish it were as easy as saying this very clearly would increase turnout. But you're absolutely right that these are things that we need to be struggling with and we need to be asking questions about. We certainly, I mean, I, as far as I'm concerned, the really easy things to do are remove barriers to people being able to register to vote and remove identification barriers that keep people who want to show up and in many cases do show up to vote but are then turned away. I mean, there is no doubt that there is serious disenfranchisement going on across the United States, and it's not because of voter fraud. Voter fraud is a complete and utter myth It's because some people want more folks to vote and some people want fewer folks to vote. It's that simple. Um, And I think that the best way to increase turnout among people who are likely to vote is by removing these barriers, removing these barriers that often make it really hard for minorities and poor people to vote. I think that's the best thing we can do. And for anybody who's interested in this, I can't recommend the Brennan Center for Justice highly enough. Go and check out their website. They do a lot of really, really good research on all of the obstacles that various states throw up to people going and voting. And uh, they do a lot of great work trying to trying to knock down those obstacles.
0: Thanks for mentioning that resource. That's uh, definitely couldn't agree with you more on that point. You mentioned early voting. And, you know, one of the things that I think was interesting about this most recent presidential election is that as some of those early vote tallies started to come in, I mean, I heard a lot of projections that voter turnout was going to be way up because of the numbers of people that were participating in early voting which obviously didn't turn out to be the case, right? Right. Um, and, and, I mean, you mentioned that there, there are is research that shows that, like, you know, uh, if you treat early voting a certain way, then it maybe increases turnout. But if you treat it another way, it, it, it depresses turnout. Um, I mean, maybe you can share a little bit more information on, on, on that and, and, and sort of why there was this misconception about what the turnout was going to be based on the early voting results.
1: Right. Well, the misconception largely just, I mean, to be honest, came from poor reporting. Uh, It's it's really hard to look at early voting turnout and project whether overall turnout is going to be up or down, largely because you can't compare this time around to four years ago. There are very few states that have early voting now. That also had it four years ago during the presidential election, so like it doesn't take a genius to tell like you actually can't tell anything from early <laughs> voting numbers because you have nothing to compare them to um, and so it, it it you know people could guess people could say things like, "Oh gosh, you know, usually turnout isn't that high in x location and look at how many folks are coming out to vote early but we didn't have anything to compare it to and um and it turns out as you mentioned you know overall turnout at least as a percentage of registered voters was way down and so it turns out that most people who early voted were people who otherwise would have voted on election day and just decided to do it earlier So early voting laws weren't necessarily – weren't necessarily giving new voters the chance to show up for the first time. It was mostly cannibalizing existing voters who otherwise would have voted on election day. Now, I'm not saying that's a reason to get rid of early voting. I think early voting is a good thing. I think in general, you should always try to remove any barriers – even if they're just very small inconveniences you should remove any barriers to voting but by and large early voting doesn't increase turnout and what i mentioned before you know in some instances it's been shown to increase turnout a little bit whereas in others it doesn't it usually has to do with how convenient it is for people to vote early you know so some places say yeah we have early voting uh we open one place In the entire county of, you know, Jefferson County, Missouri, where people can show up between 9 and 12 if they want to on two days. Well, that's not, like, really convenient. (laughs) That doesn't help much. (laughs) Whereas other places say, you know what, we're going to make sure to have a place open every day, three weeks before the election, within, you know, one mile of people's houses across a city or something. Well, in instances like that, sometimes it does increase turnout a little bit, but it's obviously very expensive to do that. And so, listen, don't get me wrong. I think early voting is a good thing, but it is – Certainly not a panacea, and it often does not increase turnout at all.
0: So, uh, what comes next for the Environmental Voter Project? And and you know, I I I wonder if you're sort of viewing the next steps that the organization uh, should take, you know, a, a little bit differently than maybe you would have if the outcome of of this election was different.
1: Well, uh, you know, as as you mentioned, and, and I mentioned at the at the beginning of the uh, of the podcast, you know we've never been about one election. We're we're playing the long game. We don't try to win elections. We're trying to win the electorate. So regardless of what happened on November eighth, and we would have said the same thing on November seventh, we're focused on the long game, and that's because we're we're trying to change the amount of demand in this marketplace. We're not trying to change who gets elected. We're trying to change the number of environmentalists who vote. Um, But yes, November 8th certainly, uh, certainly affected the work that we do. And it did it in the following way. It really highlighted what we've been saying ever since we launched 13 months ago. And that is that There is a candidate who has been plaguing the progressive movement for decades, and that candidate's name is Did Not Vote. Did Not Vote won 490 electoral votes. Almost 100 million eligible voters did not vote. Turnout, as a percentage of registered voters, went from 84% down to 67%. And so one thing that November 8th did was really highlight what we've been saying from the very beginning, and that is, yes, it's important to persuade people to care about environmental issues, and yes, it's important to elect environmental candidates and then lobby the you-know-what out of them, but it is also really important to fix this turnout problem that we have in the environmental movement because we've actually already won the battle for people's hearts and minds. The problem is that most of our constituents, most of the people who really, really care about environmental issues, ain't voting. They might put solar panels on their roof, or they might recycle, or they might ride their bike to work, but they're not expressing their environmental activism at the polls, and that's having a huge and detrimental impact on how policy is made at every level now what does it mean for us going forward well you know we're a new nonprofit, uh and even though we've identified over 15 million environmentalists who who rarely or never vote we can at best only reach three or four percent of them right now uh so we have really exciting proven results but we need to bring those results to more people uh So now we're fundraising. I know that's not unique to us. That's what every nonprofit does. (laughs) But we're fundraising so we can expand our impact because, wow, Matt, I mean, we could have had a huge impact on this last election. But also moving forward, we could have a huge impact on how environmental policy is made on the local, state, and federal level. And that's so important to realize. We focus on every election. And I want to talk about this not just because of the work that we do, but it's important for all of your listeners to understand this too. Let's take cities, for example. Cities account for over 70% of energy-related carbon emissions. But how many of your listeners vote for mayor or vote for city council? I mean, city mayors can quite literally save the planet. They can save the planet. Yes, it's important who our president is. But, I mean, just if we just affect municipal policies, we can save the planet, let alone state and federal policies. But mayors are going to focus on schools and potholes and parking unless environmentalists start showing up to vote. And so – What we're going to do is we're not going to do anything different from from what we set out to do 13 months ago. When we find these non-voting environmentalists, we don't just make sure they vote in the big sexy elections. We make sure they vote for city council and mayor and state rep and state senate and governor because that will have a huge impact on local and state environmental policies, which are extraordinarily important. Whether you care about climate change or open space or clean air or clean water or other conservation issues. So we're, we're really excited to be doing that work uh, despite the fact that uh, federal policy is going to be a challenge. It will absolutely be a challenge.
0: I'll just say that I'm really excited that you are out there doing that work and that you have a team of folks at the Environmental Voter Project that that have taken on this mission because it's extremely important. I'm really glad that you brought up uh, the importance of voting, not just in these uh, big presidential elections that get a ton of media coverage, but also voting in all these local elections and how important that is. All really good points, and yeah, like I said, it gives me hope that... There is an organization out there like the Environmental Voter Project uh, with this mission that that is working to get more environmentalists active and engaged and and, and voting. So thank you. Thanks again for uh, uh, thanks for coming on the show for, for a second time to do this sort of post uh, election recap with me. It's been a lot of fun.
1: Well, it was my pleasure. Thank you for uh, for doing what you do. Uh, this podcast is, uh, is, is a real treasure and I always like chatting with you, Matt.
0: All right. That was our conversation with Nathaniel Stinnett from the Environmental Voter Project. I love Nathaniel's positive yet realistic take on the outcome of our presidential election. I said it during the interview, but I'll say it again here. It, It does. It really does give me hope to know that Nathaniel and all the folks at the Environmental Voter Project are committed to this task of turning environmentalists into more consistent voters. It is a truly noble mission, and I'm hopeful that we will soon start to see results from their efforts in some of these smaller local elections all across the country. If you want to learn more about the Environmental Voter Project, you can head on over to the show notes page for this episode where you'll find all of the links and resources mentioned in this episode. Those show notes can be found at wildlensinc.org EOC99. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can subscribe to this show on iTunes or the podcatcher of your choice. You can also help us out by leaving an honest rating and review on iTunes. Just search for eyes on conservation in the itunes store the eyes on conservation podcast is a production of wild lens today's episode was produced by myself your host matt Podolsky. our theme music is by the humidors